Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. The film, uh, which follows the events of the hit TV series, it arrived on Netflix this past weekend. It will arrive on AMC at some point in the future. Uh, which will be a major disruption from all their Walking Dead shows, which is apparently their only programming these days. <laughs> remember when it was American movie classics? I remember when it was a thing. It had Mad Men and Breaking Bad, and yeah. like it was going to be a thing. And apparently AMC is just hell to work with. Like They are yeah. just a really bad network that sort of stumbled into two groundbreaking, g- decade-defining defi- shows. <laughs> I will not stand for the Rubicon erasure here, Matt. I will stand for it, because that show bored me to tears. <laughs> that show was very boring. Apparently, Halt and Catch Fire got good in like its second or third season, but I never, I didn't stick around. Yeah. I watched like two or three episodes, and I was like, this is just copying. It was kind of like Netflix now, where you watch like a Netflix movie or show, and you're like, oh, they just use their algorithm to like, like that, I think there's like a post-apocalypse movie coming up, and it's like, oh, they know that people like Ferris Bueller, and they know that people like these teen shows, and they just add a bit of this, bit of that. That's kind of what the Halting Catch Fire first couple episodes felt like to me. It was like, oh, it's Mad Men. Yeah. And then there's a little bit of Breaking Bad in there. <laughs> so Breaking Bad, though, was... I think it's it's sort of... it. I, I, I feel like it was kind of this the show that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, no one really expected it. And then it sort of just took off, especially thanks to Netflix. And it is a very bingeable show, even though it aired week to week on AMC. Um, and so in this episode, we're going to talk about El Camino, but we're also going to talk about the legacy of Breaking Bad and sort of how the two tie together and just go into that. And then we'll finish up with recent, recently watched recently watched recently watched. Oh, no, I have a list now. <laughs> no. Okay. So uh, El Camino, let's – first off, I, I have to say, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad or El Camino, <laughs> don't listen to this episode. Yeah, it what are you sh- doing? It should Get kind of, of go without saying. Um, but the, uh, the, the show El- – so El Camino comes out, follows the events of Breaking Bad. I, my review is on the site. I, I got up early and watched it so the review could be posted early. Uh, Adam, what did you think of, of El Camino? Uh, I mean, I will say I watched it. There were a legion of... So, uh, kind of unique. Netflix did not provide any screeners to any press. So, everyone, every website you saw who had an El Camino review meant that some reviewer either watched it at midnight Pacific the night before or got up super early on Friday morning to watch it like Matt did. Uh, and Dave did as well for feature consideration. He wrote uh, a couple of really good features uh, based on it. So like as by the time I came online, like the reactions were already out and people were like, uh, it's kind of bad and it's not very good and it's, it's lame and it's not what we wanted. So my expectations kind of plummeted uh, before I actually watched it. So that's the caveat to all of this is that, you know, I was anticipating it, but I wasn't like, it wasn't one of my most anticipated films of the year. I was looking forward to it, but it, I didn't, uh, I had no designs that, you know, oh, Vince Gilligan is going to change the game with his El Camino movie. Um, so that being said, I finally watched it and like, I thought it was fine. Like it's, Vince Gilligan making a Breaking Bad movie, which turns out is kind of like three Breaking Bad episodes strung together. Um, 
I think it's inessential, but that doesn't make it any less compelling. Uh, I really think the craft, Gilligan's direction is just tremendous. Uh, and something I, I've mentioned, and I, uh, I interviewed the composer, Dave Porter, who worked on Breaking Bad, Better Girl Saul, and then on El Camino. And I was talking to him about how, uh, and if you watch Better Call Saul, you know, like the core creative team that made Breaking Bad has stayed together this entire time. And Dave Porter said he is a remarkably better composer now than he was in the first season of Breaking Bad. And so it's kind of like everyone honed their craft together. And so kind of seeing that craft on display in El Camino um, with, you know, Vince Gilligan directed, I think the cinematographer like had only done a couple of episodes of Breaking Bad. Um, but watching that, I, I really enjoyed it just from a craft level. I thought it was just really impeccably made. Um, from a story standpoint, I mean, it's an epilogue. Uh, it's not necessary. And it doesn't even – it's not even like uh, it's not even like the, the Harry Potter epilogue where it picks up 10 years later. It's minutes after. So it's very much like – and I think we all talked about this when the Breaking Bad series finale hit. Like there were two series finales to Breaking Bad. Ozymandias, the second to last episode, was kind of third more like – Third to last. Oh, was Ozymandias the third to last? Yeah, it's oh. Ozymandias, Granite State, Felina. Those are the last three episodes. Uh, okay, okay. So the last three, um, I'll say, are, uh, you know, Ozymandias feels like a, a series finale in and of itself, and then Granite State and Felina take place sometime later. Um, not significantly later, but a little bit later. Um, and uh, I think you got kind of two versions of a series finale with that, and El Camino feels like, another version of a series finale or epilogue. Well, yeah, it's like an epilogue to an epilogue because, yeah, but the thing is, is that in a weird way, breaking bad requires two epilogues because breaking bad is Walter White's story as, as important as Jesse Pinkman is to the whole narrative. It is ultimately Walter White's story. And so Jesse's story was just kind of left hanging in a way that I felt still had finality to it. Like it's sort of unknown what's going to happen. Um, you never, I never felt like, you know, Breaking Bad came to a close and been like, well, I still need more, you know, like I'm like, I'm yeah. okay getting more. And I think Better Call Saul has been an appealing sort of way to, to keep existing in that world. But I wasn't like, tell me what happens moments after Jesse Pinkman escaped from the Nazi compound. And El Camino sort of gives me that answer. And to its credit, it doesn't ruin anything. I don't feel like Breaking Bad is weaker because of it. But like you said, it's kind of inessential. And I think it's partially inessential because I don't think it necessarily has a strong reason for being other than to sort of let fans tune back into this world and sort of, oh, what happened to Jesse? Like it, it answers a narrative question character question and that's a problem because your show is for all of its plot and it's a i mean there's a lot of plot in breaking bad it is ultimately a a a narrative about characters and the the show's reason for being is a character driven reason it's all about walter white's arc from mild-mannered science teacher to your to drug kingpin that's about a character and when you get to el camino i just i can't tell you what that means for Jesse's character. Some have said, oh, it's a redemption story. But I don't think it is because I don't think Jesse doesn't does anything to really be redeemed. No. No, there I I would disagree with that. I don't think it's a redemption story. No, I don't think it is either. I just like I saw it's like, oh, Breaking Bad finally gets a redemption story. And I'm like, it's not a redemption story. Like it's just not, because nothing is really 
sacrificed. Nothing is really reckoned with because the, the movie is so plot driven. It doesn't really have time for what I would say are the character beats that made Jesse's story so rich. Like if you go back to earlier episodes like Problem Dog or Peekaboo that really just sit with Jesse as a character, you really get a better insight to who he is, but El Camino just kind of drives him forward. He's like, okay, I'm out of the compound, but I'm on the run for the cops and I, now I need money and I got to find the money. Where's the money? And then like it's interspersed with some flashbacks, but the flashbacks also don't really illuminate anything other than certain plot beats for the most part. Yeah. I think it's more about just giving closure to Jesse's story. And you've re you've rewatched breaking bad uh, more, more recently than I have. I don't know if I have ever actually rewatched it. Um, goes down smooth. (laughs) Does it? Oh yeah. It's a super easy rewatch. Like you will, you you'll, you'd be surprised how quickly you get sucked back in. Well, and uh, I'll get to that in a little bit because I have a point about, uh, breaking bad and its rewatchability, but, Mm -hmm. um, but to my recollection, the last few episodes of Breaking Bad were very Walt centric and like that whole final season. And I think the season before it, but I can't remember for sure. Jesse is just like tortured to death by Walter and by what Walter's doing. Well, it happens in the last kind of eight episodes that things okay. really fall apart. Um, I mean, it starts with Gale, with him forcing him to kill Gale. Yes. Which is like the beginning of Walt just like really making Jesse take dark turns for well, I think the thing is, is that Walt constantly makes Jesse take dark turns even before that, you know, whether it's, yeah. you know, letting Jane die or yeah. just getting Jesse into this lifestyle. Like he doesn't really let Jesse go and they're sort of their fates are kind of become intertwined because Walt can't let Jesse go. And I think, you know, you can argue how much does Walt care about Jesse? And I think he cares about Jesse in a fatherly way, but in the way, but with all the complexity that entails, not just in a, a father knows best wholesome way, but in sort of the way that our parents can really mess us up and sort of needing their approval and being in their shadow. And I think that sort of all kind of twists and, and turns Jesse and Jesse has a really fascinating up and down throughout the series um, going from kind of this goofball, you know, poser to someone who's very gritty and serious and real Um, But the thing is, is that while Walt slowly sheds his conscience over the course of the series, Jesse never does. And that you can see that's what really eats Jesse alive is that he has a conscience. Well, and I think that's what El Camino provides is this kind of finality to Jesse because Mm -hmm. he was so tortured because those last few episodes were about, uh, you know, um, what Walt was doing. And we got like an idea of what Jesse had been through at that compound with the Nazis, but not. I think El Camino gives you a full picture of what he went through, um, through those flashbacks. And I got to say, I love Todd. I love bringing back Todd because he's Todd just, is just a really fascinating sociopath. He reminds me a lot of Patrick Bateman, uh, you know, like the Huey Lewis in the news, the whole conversation about, uh, like, what was he trying to make him like some soup while that dead lady was just there? <laughs> like, he's just crazy. Um, but I, th- I I feel like the movie exists not to give Jesse some kind of redemption arc, but to give audiences and fans of the show like, oh, thank God, Jesse's OK. Exactly. Um, and I think that sort of protective instinct is also kind of one of the where- ways that Breaking Bad goes astray. Um, and I wrote an article about this, about the ending, how the ending of the show kind of mirror the ending of Breaking Bad kind of mirrors El Camino's ending in that I think. You know, as writers, you have to kill your darling. 
things. But with Walt and Jesse, it's clear that these writers and Vince Gilligan, they have this weird sympathy for these characters because they've been in, they've lived in their heads and they understand them in a certain way. And I think it provides these grace notes that you give to someone you care about, but may not necessarily be narratively rewarding. So for instance, in Breaking Bad, Walt gets a final grace note. Like when he's alone with the chemist, you know, with the, the meth set, you know, the meth lab. And he's sort of like, you know, touch, you know, touches the, the meth container tenderly to remind him of how much he loves chemistry. And it's like, you're a monster. You don't deserve this, <laughs> but the writers love him. So he gets it. And I don't think Jesse is a monster, but I think El Camino is like, we like Jesse. We want to do something good for Jesse. Let's give him this sort of closing chapter, this closure. And closure is nice, but I don't think Breaking Bad is a nice show. It's not, you know, it's not a show where everyone gets what they want. It's it's a harsh show about with a, with a very severe moral universe. And I think the problem, my main problem with El Camino, and I don't, again, I don't think El Camino is bad. Like I didn't hate watching it. Um, I like being back in this world. But I would also say I don't think El Camino has a strong enough reason to exist. I don't think closure for Jesse is a strong narrative closure for Jesse is a strong enough reason for this movie to exist. Well, and then the other thing hanging over all of this is Better Call Saul, which mm-hmm. is in many ways the better version of El Camino. Which and, and, and to, to to so that our listeners know, I've only seen the first season of Better Call Saul. I am way behind on that yeah. show. Well, and so Better Call Saul was built very much like Breaking Bad and that like, you know, originally it was going to be a half hour comedy show. And then as they were developing it, they decided to go full hour, maybe a little bit more dramatic. And so then they started making the first season and they were like, yeah, he'll become Saul by the end of the first season. And then they started falling in love with this Jamie McGill character and said, ah, let's not do it yet. Uh, we'll do it like maybe midway through season two. And they didn't do it yet. And they kept putting it off. Um, and like that transformation, that full transformation uh, we've only just started to see the beginning of that, and we're in, I think, season four now? Uh, season five, I think, just uh, is currently filming or just wrapped filming. Um, but that show is very dramatic and serious and really emotionally devastating in a lot of ways, uh, charting the course of how Jim McGill uh, essentially sells his soul and becomes this uh, soulless, heartless uh Saul Goodman. But then you have these flash forwards within the show, which have gotten a little bit more prevalent in the past couple seasons, spending a little bit more time in them, um, to what happened to Saul after the events of Breaking Bad, where he's working at this Cinnabon uh, as a guy named Gene. And the weight of those scenes has gotten a lot heavier in later seasons as you've kind of come to learn what uh, Saul's life was before he became Saul Goodman. Um, And that show, I think... I don't know. It's more satisfying because it's this story, this chapter of the story that had not been told and it's told in a really surprising and compelling way. And it's like, huh, I didn't really, I'm not sure. Like, I didn't know that I needed to know all of this. Like, if that makes any sense, like it it does, none of it feels superfluous or like, Oh, I didn't really need to know the backstory of whatever. Like they found really brilliant ways of doing it. And Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad helped create Better Call Saul and served as like co-showrunner for the first couple of seasons, I think. And Peter Gould is the showrunner now and Gilligan's still involved. But as I said, it's the same creative team, the direction and cinematography on Better Call Saul is some of the best on like all of television right now. I'd go so far as to say it's probably the best directed show on television. Um, at this moment. And so that kind of hangs over El Camino. Cause when you get to El Camino, having like watched better call Saul, 
feels a little inessential. Like it feels like I did, don't really know if I needed to know all of this other stuff. But this is the other point I kind of wanted to get to is that, and a, one of the reasons I'm a little worried to go back to Breaking Bad is that one of the things that made the show so compelling and one of the things that makes Better Call Saul so compelling is the details mm -hmm. and the way that Gilligan um, loves getting into process as he's directing. And so, for instance, in El Camino, um, like the scene, the montage when he's in Todd's apartment trying to find the money, like it's a long sequence and it goes through a lot. He goes through a lot of steps and a lot of things and you don't know where it's going. Like you, he shows up to this uh, building and then it flashes back and you like, you're picking up little pieces of the story as it's going along. And I'm not sure if like, a 25 minute sequence is as compelling when you know what the ending is, when you know what happens, because one of the the things that they revel in, in the filmmaking on these shows and, and in this movie uh, is that kind of process by which these characters try to discover something. So like you said, like El Camino was so much about like, all right, Jesse's got the money or now he's got to find out how to like, he has to get the money and then he doesn't have enough money and then he has to get the rest of the money. And so those steps that it takes, the filmmaking of those, the tension in those are really well done and really interesting, compelling. And it's clear that that's something that Gilligan really enjoys. Um, you know, and he's talked about being inspired by Sergio Leone. He has his own showdown in the movie. Um, but as you said, character-wise, there's just not much there El Camino, in El Camino. And well, it's, and I, it's pretty much all this process, which from a like, cinematic standpoint is compelling to watch to me. Like I enjoyed watching it, mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure I got much emotional fulfillment out of it. And that's where I would say like the reason Breaking Bad holds up is because of the character stuff. Like There is, oh. like I said, a lot of plot, but even if you know where it's going, like I was still so excited. And part of that was like, you know, watching it with, with my wife who hadn't seen it before. Yeah. Um, and sort of waiting for her reactions. But I would also say, even though I knew where it was going, I was still wrapped up in it because a, the filmmaking is off the charts. The, the direction of the, of breaking bad is really stunning. And they've just, the heavy hitters they have on this show, uh, and the way that they draw you into this world is really something. I mean, they've made a, a, a sun-drenched noir, essentially. Yeah. And it's really captivating. Like, f the craft is, is impeccable. And it only gets... like it, it, The craft of the, of the show starts out strong and just gets better as, as the show goes along. They take more risks. They do more interesting things. But the show never loses sight of character. The show is very much about character and sort of inching these characters forward. And there are times where I think sometimes they don't move fast enough with character. Um, I think when Hank, ever, whenever Hank gets in a rut, that, that rut lasts about two episodes too long. <laughs> yeah. He gets in a rut when he, when he, when he has PTSD after watching Danny Trejo's head explode and he gets PTSD. Then he start like a rock collection. Then he started, they're minerals. They're minerals, <laughs> yeah, Adam. Right. Uh, no. Yeah. And he gets in a rut and it takes so, but then once Hank gets going, you're like, oh, Hank is on the, on the on the war path now, and like, you really feel that movement, and that's the thing about Breaking Bad is like its pacing is very, uh, is it really draws you in, but it's the it's the ups and downs of these characters, and I I feel like watching the transformation of Walter White is really what makes the show hum, and how. What makes it so captivating is and so disturbing is that he starts out so mild-mannered 
And you kind of see what drives him forward. Like, we understand him. And I don't want to go so far as like, there's a Walter White in all of us. Because I don't think that the, the show is saying that. But I do think it's sort of shining a very specific light on a, a toxic masculinity that we weren't really talking about <laughs> at the time. Because I think we were so enraptured with, ooh, how's Walt going to get away with it this time? That once you see the, sh- the whole arc of the show, you can see this guy who's just incredibly selfish and only cares about himself and will sacrifice everyone else just for his own pride and to get what he wants because his sense of self is so fragile. And it's it's a really fascinating thing. I would also add, though, I think it is very much an Obama-era show. It's the kind of show that you enjoy where it's like, the world is is functioning fairly well as it stands. Yeah. I mean, it's not perfect, but I can I cannot wake up every day thinking this is a fucking nightmare. Um, that's harder to do today. And it's certainly harder to watch like, oh, here's a here is a guy who just lies constantly and only becomes more powerful. <laughs> that's not as rewarding today for reasons <laughs> that I'm sure you can imagine. For reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to to rewatch it. My fiance is, hasn't seen it uh, either, so I think that's going to be uh, one of our next big TV projects after we we just finished Veronica Mars, uh, mm-hmm. which was a traumatic experience given the controversial ending to the most recent season. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, we're looking down like uh, you'll see on Collider um, later this year. We'll be running best of the decade lists. And Breaking Bad is gonna be at the towards the top of all lists, and I, you know, I'd maybe go as far so far to say is it it's the it, best TV it's, show. That it's the best. I'm saying it's it. The best. I'll it's call best. it. It's the okay. best. I know that some people are like, no, no, it's Mad Men. No, no, no. <laughs> look, I mean, look, Matt. All due respect to Mad Men, but Breaking Bad is better. Sorry, Mad Men had like a fallow, like one fallow season, and then it didn't really fully recover after that. Like it was still great after that, but it was not. Uh, Breaking Bad is just like I described it to people at the time because I watched it on uh, Netflix DVD screeners. That's how I caught up. Mm. Um, so it was Cranston's Emmy win uh, or nomination or something for the first season. Did he win for the first season? No, he didn't win till like no. the fourth season, I think fourth or fifth. Oh, huh. I thought he I thought he won uh, earlier, but um, I don't that think kind he of did. But me. I was like, oh, this show that's on like A and E or something like that. <laughs> Nice A and E reference. I very vividly remember it being like thinking it was on A and E. Like that was the channel that I thought it was on. Because to me, A and E and AMC were both like as weird, weird places for like a really cool TV show. Um, But yeah, I caught up on it uh, with DVD screeners. I think the first two seasons, Uh, and then I watched season three live. Um, And it just when I was recommending it to people at the time i would say that like it's one of those rare shows that each season is better than the last and there are no bad seasons by the so way you are it only he did win kill. for he did win for his first season i'm looking now okay okay that's what i thought because i like he won and he watched the season like breaking bad and i was like what is breaking bad and why is it on a and e so many questions uh it came out of nowhere um but yeah it's i mean it's legacy is is so remarkable to the point that I think the the reaction to El Camino have been mixed. I've seen a lot of people disappointed, a lot of people saying like it's okay. I haven't really seen anyone being like it's amazing. Oh my god! Um, but I don't think El Camino will harm its legacy in any way. 
No, I don't think it will either. Um, I think Breaking Bad still stands alone as this really tri- as this triumph of television that I think a lot of other programs tried to chase with like, and I and not that like you know Breaking Bad was the first big anti-hero show. I think that was The Sopranos. Um, but I think Breaking Bad really harnessed it into sort of a specific vision that didn't, that had a more compelling aspect to it. And that's not, I know that, you know, the Sopranos diehards are out there and they're, they are legion, but the thing I think that differentiates Sopranos is not decade. It's not this decade. I know, I know, but I'm comparing the two. I'm comparing the two in terms of anti-hero stories. And the reason I think Breaking Bad was more electrifying is that Breaking Bad has more of an arc to it. Whereas The Sopranos is a collection of scumbags. <laughs> the Sopranos is much more in the vein of Mad Men, where you're mm-hmm. kind of watching yeah. <laughs> you're you're watching a short story every week, right? And Matthew Weiner, I think, was a writer on Sopranos. He was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of the school that he came from. Whereas Vince Gilligan David... was an X Files alum and knows that <laughs> yeah. propulsive storytelling. Yeah, exactly. It's two different types of storytelling, which is why I love both Mad Men and Breaking Bad, because they're two very different shows, but I think they're both uh, incredible and two of the best TV shows of all time. Um, but there is something kind of incredible about Breaking Bad. And and the thing I always point to towards it, I mean, widely regarded as one of the best TV shows of all time uh, and one of the best examples of you do not have to know where it's going. Vince Gilligan said over and over and over again, he and his writer's team would write themselves into a corner and they would have to figure out how to write themselves out. When Walt opens his trunk and there's that giant machine gun in it in the beginning of the last season, they did not know where that machine gun came from. They did not know what it was going to be used for. They just thought this is a what could be in this trunk. What if it was a machine gun? Let's write it and then figure out how it fits in later Mm -hmm. um and that's like to like that's not a new idea when jj abrams and damon lindelof were coming up with a pilot for lost abrams said they should find a hatch on the island and damon said what's in it and he said i don't know we'll figure that out later but they should find a hatch like that's interesting and that's how storytelling works you don't have to be like no 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 we cannot put this story point in until we know exactly what it is and where it's going and you saw that in the legion of lost copycats that came afterwards where they were like, we've plotted out five seasons of this show and know exactly where it's going. Uh, and that just made it kind of boring. Yeah, I think there's this sort of approach, this viewer approach to storytelling of like, I, it's a very consumer-driven approach, which is that, oh, a show is like a fast food order and you should know exactly what you're making before you deliver it to me. And it's like, art doesn't work like that. Like... It, it doesn't, you have to give it room to sort of organically expand and contract and give it room to mess around. And, and Vince Gilligan knew the, the, the large structure of Breaking Bad. He knew break, guy, mild-mannered guy becomes a drug kingpin. He knew that. But everything else, he was free to, like Jesse Pinkman was supposed to die at the end of the first season. And it's yeah. impossible to imagine Breaking Bad without Jesse, but that's because they gave themselves the freedom to be like, no, no, there are no hard and fast rules. And I think, you know, you can see the flip side of like, well, when you play with hard and fast rules, you can really blow up in your face, like uh, How I Met Your Mother. Like they, they're like, well, the show has to end this way because we filmed something 10 years ago and they couldn't let it go without realizing, oh, wait, uh, no one has chemistry with Ted Mosby. (laughs) Oh, that ending is so bad. That whole idea for that final season was terrible, too. It didn't work. Was it the final season? The final yeah, season, the final se- season. Se- setting it all in this one location. Yeah, it didn't work, yeah. didn't work so great. The whole uh, season takes place over the course of one day. Yeah. they. Um, 
I think it's telling that even though How I Met Your Mother was a was a successful show when it was on the air and has gone into successful syndication, uh, those showrunners have done dick since. Well, and they had the spinoff How I Met Your Dad with and, Greta Gerwig starring and up. writing. It didn't even get picked up. Just crazy. We may not have gotten Lady Bird uh, if it weren't for that not being picked up. Um, so, so thanks for making a lousy pilot, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think, and, and that's happening on Better Call Saul as well, as I mentioned. Like, they had planned on turning him into Saul at the end of season one, and then they said, you know what? Like, the story's not taking us there. Like, the we kind of want to spend more time with this Jamie McGill character and find out a little bit more about him. Um, and they kind of roughly know where it is. I think Vince said that when he was, he wrote El Camino, and he took it to the Better Call Saul writers and was like, does this, does this like, hurt your ending at all? Because they're starting to plan out the end game of that series. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, it's fine. Um, so... But they still, like, they just have kind of an amorphous idea of what the ending of that show is. And that's, you know, not every writer can do that. I don't think all writers are created equal. Um, and, you know, it it takes a talented group of writers to be able to write themselves out of a corner so frequently and do it so well um, on Breaking Bad. But it just angers me when people are like, they should have plotted out the new Star Wars trilogy from the beginning. Yeah, again, that's just, that's that criticism seems to come from people who don't ever have to create anything. Again, they think like, this is this is an order. I've ordered this thing. Give me the thing that I want. And it better be not just, not only that, it should be perfect. And I'm like, you can have something that's perfectly planned out and it sucks. Like just, just cause you have a plan that doesn't, that doesn't suddenly make it immune to criticism. Well, the one piece of Star Wars movie franchise that was plotted out is the prequels. That's it. The original uh, trilogy, obviously like, changed all the time because uh george lucas did not know that darth vader was luke's father until like the third or fourth draft of writing empire strikes back um star and then wars is originally one. called luke star killer and the kyber crystals <laughs> yeah yeah so but then when he came back around with the prequels he had all he had them all mapped out all of the characters that he was using and all that stuff uh and it was boring so yeah so i think you know el camino is again it's kind of an inessential thing but it doesn't harm Breaking Bad. I think it's a neat curiosity for what it is. Yeah. Um, but it did. And I'm, so, I'm so glad that Robert Forster oh, yeah. uh, is in it. And I think we should take a minute to talk about him because, uh, like, I was just so happy watching him. And literally, like, within hours after I finished watching it, I saw the news that he had passed a away. A friend texted me. He texted me in the morning and he's like, Robert fucking Forrester. And I'm like, oh, he must have seen El Camino and showed how good yeah. how good he was in it. And I didn't realize until later, oh, he's texting me that Robert Forrester is dead. Yeah. Um, and that's just a shame. I think Robert Forrester never really got the recognition among the mainstream that he deserved. But man, what a reliable, unique presence in everything. And that whole that whole sequence between him and Jesse, like the movie really comes alive in that scene um, when they're you're not really sure how it's going to play out. Uh, and I think Forrester is just amazing in that scene. And I was so happy to see him back. Yeah, same. Uh, I guess we should also talk about the Walt cameo, which did it bring anything to the table? I mean, <laughs> like, I got like a giddy thrill seeing Brian Cranston back as Walter White. Yeah, but it didn't. Again, like kind of is symbolic of the whole film. It's neat to have it. Does it serve a purpose? Not yeah. really. Yeah, I was like, oh, I guess this is what it would have looked like if Cranston had not shaved his head and had worn a ball cap the whole time. Which good ball cap, like good work, makeup and uh, effects team. Um, nice job. 
but yeah, I was like, oh, is this going to reveal some like crazy chapter from their past that we didn't know about? It's like, no, nah, they're just going to have a conversation. And it's like, you know, Walt being Walt and Jesse being Jesse. It was kind of nice to be reminded of how Jesse was in the beginning when he was just kind of a punk. And Yeah, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Kind of love and life. Yeah. Uh, and I liked the Jane moment. I thought that was a nice touch. I like the Jane moment. I would have put it at the beginning of the film because I feel yeah. like that what she is saying is the closest to sort of giving the film a thematic arc, which is that Jesse throughout Breaking Bad is just kind of batted around by the winds of fortune and El Camino is him taking charge to finally get out of that and take control of his life. Yeah. So, but yeah, um, not, not a failure by any stretch, but um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, I, you know, I mean, because it's on Netflix, we'll never know how it performed, but uh, you know, a neat thing all the same. Well, I guess we'll, we'll get ratings for it when it airs on AMC in a year or six months or whatever. Yeah. See how many people are like, yeah, I don't have Netflix, but I'll watch it on AMC. Exactly. Who, who are those people? <laughs> um, all right. So anything else to say or should we move on to Recently Watched? Now let's move on to Recently Watched. All right. What have you seen lately? So uh, the, the you know Parasite fandom is reaching a fever point now that the movie – I think the movie opened in limited release this past weekend. and it just did. did gangbusters uh box office uh you and i both saw it at tiff you and i both loved it and gave me an opportunity to fill in some gaps in my uh filmography of bong joon ho um and so i checked out memories of murder which i think is his second film uh from 2003 and i was blown away and now i'm like full bong hive uh so um the film is it's kind of based on this series of murders that happened in in Korea, um, I think it was the first serial killer in in Korean history that took place between 1986 and 1991. Uh, these women were uh, raped and killed and and left in fields. Um, and it kind of follows the like the ineptitude of the uh, police and the police department in in trying to investigate these crimes. Um, and it's. It, I don't know. It's So it stars uh, Song Kang-ho, who is in a lot of Bong Joon-ho's films, uh, and I think he gives a really tremendous performance here. Um, and then another detective comes in from um, Seoul, uh, who's a little bit more experienced and knows a little bit more what he's doing. But I was really struck by, like, if, if this movie had come out in 2007, I would have said it was really greatly influenced by Zodiac. But it wasn't, because it came out before Zodiac, but it feels a lot like Zodiac. Uh, and Bong Joon-ho's handle of the frame and shot composition, just like his filmmaking style. And I learned after the fact, and it should have, should come as, as no surprise, but he, he doesn't shoot coverage. He edits in camera, much like, um, uh, Edgar Wright and and Steven Spielberg. Uh, and I don't know if Fincher does it too, but there is, uh, like, I would compare him to Fincher a bit as well in terms of just how masterfully, masterfully composed his shots are, um, but the film itself is gorgeous and just really meticulously crafted. And like, it's funny, it's darkly funny at times, but then like it turns pretty tragic and um, pretty emotional by the end of it. Uh, and I was just blown away. And it, it's this feeling that you get when you uh, you've discovered a filmmaker that you weren't super familiar with, but now you just want to see as much of their stuff as possible. So now I'm like, I'm really excited to uh, finally watch Mother, which I've never seen. Um, 
and to kind of just like dig deep into his filmography and i'm i'm just so happy i saw it it's on amazon prime right now uh i would highly recommend checking it out um before or after you see parasite it doesn't really matter but um i was just really blown away by the performances and the direction and and just the the way the whole thing was composed yeah i i'd still need to see memories of murder and uh and mother and i think a couple others but yeah Definitely hoping to check up on on Bong's filmography. It's terrific. Bong Hive. <laughs> uh, for me, I just finished watching uh, the first season of The Crown uh, because the third season drops on Netflix in a month. And my wife has been, you know, trying to get me to watch The Crown for a while now. And so, and I, and I had made sort of a few false starts. I, I watched it and I'm like, eh, I'm not really into it. And I watched a couple more episodes. I'm like, eh, I'm still not really into it. And then it's one of those shows like, oh, it hits its stride around episode five. And yes, I hate it when that happens. I wish, I wish every show just hit the ground running. But once, once the show sort of settles in and finds its major conflicts, it has a really strong structure. So it's, uh, for those who don't know it, the show is planned to be six seasons long and every two seasons it'll change who, who plays the queen. So the first two seasons are Claire Foy. The next two seasons will be Olivia Coleman, and they haven't cast who will play the old queen. Um, but they each cover sort of a period in her life. So uh, this, the first two seasons are like the fifties and sixties. And what's interesting about the show is that it sort of, it has, it has that really kind of strong overarching structure where there are, there are character threads woven throughout the season, but it also feels very episodic. So for instance, uh, there will be one episode, uh, and I think this is the episode where really things start coming together, where that deals with, uh, there's a black fog that has essentially encircled London from the over-industrialization. And it's really a show, it's an episode about climate change. Um, and you have Winston Churchill being like, it's weather, it will pass. Yeah. And um, the show is really about her sort of, you know, it's another episodic, you know, overall in the structure, it's about her sort of coming into, you know, learning how to lead. But episodically, it's not like the entire show is about the weather crisis now. It's contained to that one episode. And yet uh, what Peter Morgan, the show's writer, does, and he writes all the episodes, what he does is he uses these sort of episodic structures to really illuminate a specific point about the struggle, the larger struggle, which is you have... Elizabeth Windsor, the the person, the sister, the daughter, the wife, and her trying to balance that with being the crown, being Elizabeth Regalia, and and how do you, um, how do you be that? How do you how do you be that symbol? What does it mean to be the crown? What does it mean to hold the nation together? Uh, what is her power? What 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 control does she exert? What is required of her? And the you know, and especially as a woman, you know, what kind, how do men try to exert control over her? Even though she is the queen, um, it's really fascinating. The show is is gorgeous. Uh, Philip Martin uh, has really made a name for himself uh, directing these episodes. Uh, there are some astounding shots. Uh, I th- I think the craft is amazing. Whatever they spend on this show, it must be crazy because of the costuming budget alone. It's uh, the most expensive Netflix original series, I think. It's yeah, it looks it. <laughs> you can see that money on screen. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I I would say the Crown is a little slow to get started, but I would also say it's not a show that you can binge. Like it's a show where I watch an episode and I'm like, that's good. I want to sit with that and I'll watch another episode tomorrow. Um. 
So I would say uh, if you're if you're thinking about getting into the crown, start watching now, uh, and then because Olivia Coleman is your new queen and she's amazing. <laughs> so uh, that the crown returns, I think November fourteenth or seventeenth. Um, so I, I'd say give it a watch now. Yeah, Sam and I got into the first season like a year ago, year and a half ago, and we liked it. But like you said, it's really hard to binge. So I think we watched like half or two-thirds of the season and enjoyed it, but we never returned to it. But we plan on doing so. At yeah. some point. I would say just watch one episode and then let it sit. And like I think yeah. you'll enjoy it a whole lot more than like, oh, I got to get to the next one. It feels like a show that would benefit from like a weekly release. Like, I, it, it would. It really yeah. would. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, uh, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.